Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back, everyone, to our monthly School of Christie meeting. And uh, thanks for holding on there. I had canceled once this month for not feeling well, but since we had five Saturdays uh, here this in the month of January, we were able to squeeze it in. And uh, next Saturday, uh, just as a reminder, will be also the oratory lecture series that Father Mike is will be leading if he's feeling up to it. Uh, at that point, uh, I imagine it will be not in person, though. I think we're still quarantined to that point. Uh, and so uh, glad to be able to do this. It's a little bit of a shorter reading from Guardini uh, this evening. If you remember, we've been, uh, for those of you who are new with us here, and for those who are new with us, we've been reading through Romano Guardini's Meditations Before Mass. And Emily, our facilitator here, has just linked uh, the PDF to the file in the chat section, if you don't have it printed out. Uh, but we've been reading through this wonderful book that was written back in the 1940s. Guardini was a priest of the church, and uh, many of, of, his, of his writings were reflective of what we see develop at the Second Vatican Council. Uh, but his writings on the Mass in particular, I think, are quite beautiful and express some of the things that we would hope to see develop uh, in regards of our understanding of the liturgy, as well as our participation in it. In this little book, these little meditations, she's able to take us very deep uh, into the mystery of the Mass itself. If you remember over these last two years, I think it is now, we've looked at uh, how we are to prepare ourselves interiorly, as well as exteriorly for the celebration, uh, what it means to enter the church, cross the threshold, uh, and enter up into the altar. We've discussed the liturgy of the word, the meanings of the collects, uh, the, the songs of praise, the gloria, the, the creed. And, uh, and now we're moving into the liturgy of the Eucharist itself. And we've been discussing it in terms of it being a memorial and what that exactly means for us as Catholic Christians. Not simply as uh, a memory as we would typically understand it, something that took place many years ago, centuries ago, two millennia ago, but uh, rather something that is made present to us in a radical way. So not something that simply sears itself into our memory because of the significance of the event, but rather that's something that is made present to us uh, in reality, or in some ways we are made present to it, that we are made present at Calvary and the redemptive uh, fate and reality uh, that is made present to us through Christ's death on the cross, his shedding of his blood, his offering of himself, his pouring out uh, of himself so fully on the cross is made present to us in and through the Eucharist. And this is what we celebrate every single day at the altar. And so in a true, a true way, we should see ourselves at the foot of Calvary when we are celebrating mass. And uh, it is this lens that we should really uh, be looking at things as we prepare ourselves for that. And what Guardini will do in this little reflection tonight is show us how it is that, that Christ institutes this reality, how he chose to do it. And specifically, he looks at what is communicated to us in the Gospels, in particular the Synoptic Gospels, where we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the direct uh, uh, description of what he did at the Last Supper. If you remember, John has the Bread of Life discourse, where Christ says explicitly, 
unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. For my life, for my bread, for my body is real food and my blood is real drink. And, but uh, uh, Gordini will focus in tonight here specifically upon the Synoptic Gospels and their description of what Jesus did at the Last Supper, how he instituted the Holy Eucharist. And in particular, he'll view it through uh, the lens of the Passover that took place uh, at the Exodus, as God was preparing to lead his people out of slavery from Egypt, and the meal and the covenant that was established with that event. And well, that was seared in particular into the memory uh, of the Hebrews. And so it's in the context of this Passover meal that Jesus institutes the new covenant. And so he alters the, the way that that Passover meal is celebrated in a radical way. And I made a note in the, one of the margins of the pages here that certainly the apostles wouldn't have understood fully what he was doing here, but it would not have escaped them uh, the significance of his altering it so radically and what he was saying about himself in light of the Passover meal, especially uh, in light of what he had said in, in the Gospel of John about his, his bread or his body being real food and his blood being real drink, that uh, they, they would have seen the significance of it, at least startled enough by it uh, to understand its importance in the same way that those who were startled by his teaching uh, that we hear in John. We know that that day uh, they, they broke company with Jesus because of what he said, that it was just too hard for them to bear the thought of this idea of his giving them his flesh and blood to drink, that somehow he was going to nourish them upon himself and nourish them to eternal life, and that this was a necessity for our participation in eternal life. And so, you know, I think we often think of the uh, apostles being somewhat clueless, uh, but certainly they would have been very familiar with the Passover meal and its meaning. And so I think they would have grasped at least in part uh, just how radical it was that, uh, that Jesus was doing this and how deeply he was connecting himself to it. Okay. Any initial comments before we get into the text itself? Uh, for those who are new, there is in the, I believe it's, is it in the chatter re reaction section uh, where you can put up your hand and Emily will give me a little tone uh, to let me know that somebody has a question. I believe it's from the participants list, actually. Participants this is list. how you do yes, it. That's right. Okay. So if you have the text before you, I just put a little paragraph there in italicized print, and that's just my little uh, prep preparatory input. In this meditation, Guardini looks to lay out for us how Christ passed on the memorial of his person and redemptory fate. And so in the Eucharist, uh, again, we're not just celebrating an historical event, uh, simply bringing it to mind, but what comes to us in and through it is the very person of Christ himself. This is what we are receiving, but more than that, also the redemption that is accomplished through his, his death on the cross. In fact, the whole Paschal mystery 
or Passover mystery is made present to us and has his redemptory effects upon us. So his passion, death, and resurrection is all made present to us and, and transforms us. And so we literally are being brought from death to life every time we participate in the Holy Eucharist. And every time we receive the Holy Eucharist, we receive that eternal life. He begins with the gospel account itself and connects it for us to the Exodus Passover meal. God institutes the Passover meal in order that the redemption of the Hebrews from slavery might be celebrated liturgically to burn the memory of their liberation deep into their consciousness. And so in some ways, Guardini will show us that in, in a very similar way to us as Catholics, uh, that the event itself and tying it to the meal uh, etches, if you will, the, the memory of that event in their minds and makes it ever so real and concrete for us. Certainly that surpassed for us in what Christ does uh, in the Eucharist. But in a very similar way, I think the Hebrews look at the Passover meal in this fashion, that they participate in some way in this extraordinary event uh, through participating in the Passover meal that was celebrated on that very occasion. Jesus alters this meal of the covenant, and we can, we can see the exact place where he does so. He seals a new covenant with his death on the cross. He is the lamb of sacrifice. And it is his body and blood that is shed for our redemption and offered on the altar. Christ, his person, life, and fate are the contents of the new covenant and the completion of the old covenant and will remain until he comes. And so a new covenant is established uh, and something radical is communicated to us in and through it. Uh, as Gordini says, it's his person, his life, and his fate. These are, these are the contents of the new covenant that he establishes in the Holy Eucharist. And so it's not, again, simply drawing to mind the past event 2,000 years ago, but these realities are made concretely present to us, mystically present. I think, is it Denise Rousseau? Okay, you'll have to unmute yourself, okay? Thank you, Father. Yeah, I've been to a few um, satyrs in my life. Yep, me too. Um, there's a there's a regular one. Uh, I'm a, I'm at CMU, so there's a regular one in the business school that's held every year. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm always struck by, because you made me think about how the apostles might have reacted to this, is mm -hmm. all the things that are done at a seder to keep the little kids interested, because it's long <laughs> and right. um, the uh, the, the meal has has many different aspects to it and and there seems to be a, a management of the psychology of the audience to keep people interested and keep them from you know, keep them connected so I'm kind of going back to the the thought about the apostles who are we often when we read in the New Testament they seem kind of clueless a lot of times mm -hmm. how might we think about their reactions to this? remaking of this the uh, this meal that they were probably used to every year of their lives into something different to, right. to not not get, get their attention and not or not have them run out right 
Yeah, very good. Well, you know, I think part of how we do it is what we're doing now, certainly, is to not let it become something that is done pro forma, as a matter of form, that we don't become used to it. And this even happened among the Hebrews. You know, at first it was uh, celebrated in more of a grim fashion, uh, as it was celebrated uh, at the Exodus. You know, that it was done with a certain speed, uh, with the long... Uh, with their loins girt, girt, and you know, so they were standing and e eating the meal in such a way that it was reflective of the event that they were participating in. And then over time, it takes on this more of a celebratory kind of nature. And uh, and so I think they would have had to work as we do, uh, the Hebrews, in, uh, to to keep themselves engaged as well as their children. And I think part of it is in their formation in the faith that this would have been the primary event for them uh, that shaped their identity and their relationship with God. And this would have been uh, formed in their children's mind from the earliest age. And so it wouldn't have been only at the Passover uh, that they would have experienced this or talked about it, but that it would have been a common uh, thing that would have been reflected upon, in particular on the sa Sabbath day, too, and uh, uh, not just during the the, the yearly event uh, of Passover. And uh, and I think what we struggle with is uh, keeping it uh, ourselves focused on the radical nature of this and the new covenant. And also to keep in mind the historical connection with the Passover. I think, you know, that we've maybe lost sight of it and see so many people see it as mere ritual, that this is what Catholics do, and that the ritual itself forms our identity. Uh, uh, but what we see over time is when we lose that connection with the events surrounding it and with our understanding of the nature of it, then very quickly, it does become something pro forma, that we're, we just begin going through the motions and it loses its impact. The grace is still present there, but what the grace, whether or not that grace bears fruit depends you know, what's going on within our own hearts and how we receive it, how receptive we are. And so liturgically as Catholic, uh, as Catholics, we constantly are bringing our, ourselves back to it through our various feasts throughout the year, and then certainly in our preparation for uh, for the Passover, uh, for the Passover, or for for Easter itself, through the forty days of Lent. I mean, this is why Lent arises really as a retreat to prepare us to enter into these events that shape our. Not, not only our understanding of ourselves, but prepare us uh, to enter into the, the profound mystery of our redemption. And so we spend 40 days a year uh, with, you know, multiple ascetical disciplines, uh, as well as study of the scripture to heighten our, not only our understanding, but our the preparation of our minds and our hearts to enter into it. Plus, we have other feasts throughout the course of the year that are, are meant to, uh, I think, help us penetrate the mystery on, on, a, on a deeper level. Uh, those who reveal to us, those feasts that express 
who Christ is for us, whether it's the incarnation, the presentation in the temple, uh, the transfiguration, all, all the major feasts that we celebrate throughout the course of the year uh, communicate to us who Christ is for us as Redeemer. And then we have feasts such as the Feast of Corpus Christi. Uh, it's a shame in the past we also had a feast of the precious blood of Christ as well. And, you know, multiple feasts, I think, that maybe helped us enter into that more fully. And we even had a period prior to the beginning of Lent, uh, kind of pre-Lent, to help us enter into that as well. And so liturgically, uh, we have all of these means to help us enter into it, but it really is, it does come down to it, I think, what you, you sort of intimated there, is how do you keep the children engaged in this reality? How do you form their minds and their hearts? And I think this is why in maybe more recent times, especially since the Second Vatican Council of uh, sort of emphasizing the, the family as the domestic church, it's here where, where we are supposed to be formed, uh, you know, foremost, I think, uh, as, as Christians. It's here in the family that these things are stressed for us by those who are supposed to have the greatest impact upon us in our formation as human beings, but also as men and women of faith. This is where we are to, to learn our faith in the deepest of ways, so that, you know, children aren't simply being dragged to, to mass. Uh, and I think even in some ways, uh, you know, even growing up, I grew up Presbyterian, and there was this tendency to remove the children to their catechism classes. And I think sometimes there's still that tendency in some places. There was here in my early years at the oratory to remove the children, you know, they would be in their CCD classes. And I think there's a kind of mistake in doing that you know, that I think from the earliest years of their life, uh, they need to be participating in this, even if they're not grasping it fully, they, they see the significance and the weight of it for their, their parents. And this is where it's going, the, the, the meaning of it is going to be communicated to them the most, in the deepest ways. That's what's going to make it most enduring for them. And, you know, it's partly the uh, the disciples, the apostles' love for Christ that allowed them to enter into this mystery. You know, where are we to go? You have the words of everlasting life, is what Peter says to our Lord when he teaches about the Holy Eucharist. And it's their love and faith in, in him that allows them to be open to that mystery in all of its fullness. You know, certainly at that point, they hadn't witnessed the uh, crucifixion or resurrection, and so weren't able to pull things together, but it allowed them to hold on to him in faith as the bringer of truth, as the and this truth itself, truth incarnate. And, uh, and so I think part of what's important for us as well is the fostering of that of faith. It's not reason that's going to bring us in most fully into this reality. Our study of Gardini and the teachings of the church on some level is going to help us do that, to raise us up. But ultimately we're entering into something that is beyond reason in the sense that it's only perceived and known in its fullness, known in its fullness in and through the gift of faith. 
that we are able to see God in it, and we are able to see the love of God in it. And so part of what parents are fostering is not only that the teachings of the faith, but, the, but they're fostering faith itself. And they do that more by witness than by even than by their teaching of their children. And we've talked about this often before, you know, how powerful it is to see uh, a parent kneeling or grandparents or, or aunts or uncles kneeling before the Blessed Sacrament or kneeling at Mass. You know, those are the things that become etched in the memory and imagination over the course of time so that as the child ages, he's able to enter into it and make it his own as an adult. Okay. So why don't we move on with the, the Guardini's text itself. How did Jesus establish the act by which he passed on to his fellow, his followers, the memorial of his person and redemptory fate? According to St. Luke, he did it so as follows. Now the day of the unleavened bread came on which the Passover had to be sacrificed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare for us the Passover that we may eat it. But they said, where dost thou want us to prepare it? And he said to them, behold, on your entering the city, there you will meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house into which he goes. And you shall say to the master of the house, the master says to thee, where is the guest chamber that I may eat the Passover there with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished there make ready. And they went and found just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And so at this point, they're thinking that they're preparing for the Passover meal, that they were uh, making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And uh, so uh, they have in mind that this is what Christ is doing with them, that they are going to celebrate it together. And when the hour had come, he reclined at table and the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, I've greatly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you that I will eat of it no more until it has been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And I've taken, and having taken a cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and share it among you. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So I'm glad he gave us Luke to reflect upon because there's so much here for us to consider. Uh, I greatly desire to eat this Passover with you. Uh, that, you know, from the beginning, it's Christ's greatest desire that he might share with us the fullness of the love that is, is made present within him and desires to pour it forth on the cross. Um, and he makes mention of this at other times in the Gospels. Well, oh, how I wish it were already burning. But he longs for that moment when uh, the, the love that uh, he carries within him could be poured forth fully as he breathed his last upon the cross, that it would set, as it were, our hearts on fire for love of him. And so he tells them, you know, that this is his great desire, that this is what he's been longing for. And he connects it directly here to his suffering on the cross, that which they've been resisting from the beginning. And we know that Peter in particular 
along the way rebukes him uh, right after saying that you are the son of God, uh, you are the Messiah. But then as soon as Jesus mentions the need to suffer and to die, Peter rebukes him. And so again here, he connects it explicitly with his suffering on the cross. And two interesting things here. I will eat of it no more until the kingdom comes, until the, it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And same with the drink. Uh, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And part of this only can be understood as he uh, alters the Passover meal for them and helps them to understand. He will not eat of it again because he himself is both priest and victim. He is the lamb of God. If you remember in the, the Passover story, and Gordini will cover this, I'm not going to go into detail about it, but the Passover lamb was slaughtered for a particular reason. The blood then was placed on the lintel of the door so that the angel of death in the final plague of Egypt would pass by. He would pass over the homes uh, where the Hebrews lived. So their firstborn uh, would not die. And, but from this point on, Christ himself becomes the Lamb of God. And it is his body and his blood that is offered. And uh, one of the fathers talks about uh, we, the, the, it is our lips that are painted with the blood of the lamb as we drink from, from the chalice, that this is what protects us from eternal death, that we ourselves as uh, children of God have been marked with, with the blood of the lamb of God. And so death will pass us by, will pass us over. So every time we celebrate the Eucharist, we're celebrating the Passover. And so Christ tells them, I, this, will, this is not for me until the fulfillment of God, uh, the fulfillment of the kingdom. I will not share this meal with you because I myself become, I'm going to become that meal as he will go on to, to show them that he will become that lamb of God. And having taken the bread, I've already, did I already read this paragraph? Not quite. I've, I've, and having taken the bread, he gave thanks and broke and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is being given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In like manner, he took also the cup after the supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which will, shall be shed for you. And so here within the gospel itself, he shows us is the radical departure. Christ was taking what was ever so familiar to them and the, what they would have celebrated over and over again as Hebrews and alters it and connects himself to it directly. That it is his body that will be broken. It is his blood that will be given, given and something new is being established, a new covenant. So the old passes away and its fulfillment that is prefigured in the Exodus and the Passover, the, the new comes now and fulfills the old. And in the remaining paragraphs, this is what Gorgdini is going to unpack for us. What is it that Jesus is exactly doing here? What, what is he altering when and, and, and how is it significant? 
So pretty clear so far. So basically what we have here is the nuts and bolts, if you will, of, uh, from the gospel, uh, what Christ specifically does. And now it's for us to uh, try to wrap our minds around that. Any comments or questions before moving on? Okay. Guardini goes on to say, it is the feast of the Passover, which in accordance with the law is celebrated annually before the great Easter Sabbath as a fulfillment of the divine command accorded in the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus. For centuries, the Hebrews had been living in slavery in Egypt. Then God ordered Moses to command Pharaoh to liberate them. Pharaoh had refused and the mysterious plague sent by God to overcome his resistance had affected him only briefly. Now the last and most dreadful of the plagues designed to break his stubbornness was at hand. The death of the, all the firstborn in the land of men and of beast. But to prove to his people that he was the Lord and to burn the memory of the liberation deep into their consciousness. God gave the event a form that could not fail to impress itself on the mind and the emotions alike. He commanded every Hebrew family to slaughter a lamb and to paint the doorpost with its blood so that the angel of death on his way through the land would see the sign and pass over. And so as Denise was talking about at the beginning of the group, you know, in the Seder meal or the Passover uh, it would be our the Christian's way of of, of uh, celebrating what was the Passover meal. It gives us an insight into what is actually done. There were prayers that would have been surrounded each parts of these meals, and the the same things would be eaten: the, the lamb, the bitter herbs, the uh, unleavened bread. You know, all that was preparing them for this swift exit, this exodus, this movement out of Egypt. And with it go also these readings from the story of the Passover itself. And, uh, and you get, uh, I think, Guardini's point here, uh, that it's something that's seared deeply in their consciousness and memory as a people and in regards to their relationship with God, that he intervenes in a direct and concrete way to bring them specifically out of slavery, out of bondage. And, uh, and it's for this reason too, I think that we, we can't lose sight of the Eucharist's connection to the Passover event because we too are being brought out of a bondage, out of slavery to something far greater, we are told, to the, the, the bondage to our sin, and, but also the consequence of that of, of death. Uh, and also, and more importantly than that, death e eternal. And so what seared this reality into the consciousness of the Hebrews uh, should be something that is even uh, far more powerful for, for all of us, uh, that it's not simply a lamb and its blood, but the lamb of God and his blood and body that are, are sacrificed and offered for us and not to simply bring us out of a, a physical bondage in this world, a physical slavery, but to a spiritual slavery and the death that follows upon, upon that. 
And, um, you know, again, I think there has been sort of this subtle movement, maybe not so subtle movement in the past generations to reduce it to the meal, uh, to really sort of emphasize uh, the Eucharist as that, and to move away from the terms of altar of sacrifice, and to emphasize the the meal-like properties uh, of the Holy Eucharist because of this connection with the Passover meal. And I think on one level we can understand that, but on another we we also can see how clearly that it would diminish then the radical nature of what is taking place. That it's the Last Supper is not simply celebrated on a table. You know, the power of it, the life of it flows to us from the cross. And the, you know, at the altar, we are at Calvary itself. And we are participating in that sacrifice that brings about our salvation. And so to familiar, make it turn it into something that is overly familiar or banal, uh, in, in the end, I think ultimately weakens it. We can maintain that sense, I think, of our being gathered around the altar, altar and focused upon the altar. Uh, in our celebration of the Eucharist and even hold to our, its connection to the Passover meal uh, without altering the language so much that we lose sight of that connection. And part of it perhaps is to the things that are more disturbing to our sensibilities. You know, these plagues that arise due to the hardness of the heart of Pharaoh, uh, the last plague being brought about by his own words and as a result of them you know the the death of the firstborn and uh and the, the angel of death uh passing over them all all these things are jarring to the sensibilities and manifest to us the uh, the, the weight and the significance of sin uh, but also the, the weight and the significance of God's mercy. Uh, we see it certainly in the Passover event, you know, the, the, the hardness of heart, what that brings about. Uh, but uh, we see it even more so, I think, in certainly in the, the Holy Eucharist, you know, the, the, the depth of our sin, that this is what it brings about, but this is also the depth of God's love for us that he's willing to take all of that upon himself, that it is his son that is sent, and it is his son that bears the burden for us in all of its fullness. And we are at that moment that death passes over. And it is this reality that is made available not only to the Hebrews, but to all people. Christ is the savior of all. Uh, it's in and through faith that men and women choose to, uh, to embrace that or not embrace that. Uh, but it's, this, this is a gift offered uh, to all who would, would embrace it. And, uh, and so there's no longer Jew or Greek. You know, we hear Paul talk about this, you know, all boundaries, all division break, break down, that there's a radical solidarity that exists among us as human beings, as sinners, 
and uh, that Christ is sent to redeem all. And in this sense, the Hebrews were to be a light to the nations. You know, they were to bear witness to this loving God, this God who redeems and saves and liberates and, uh, <clears throat> and prepares the world to receive its Savior, its ultimate Redeemer. So, was there a question that came up there? No, I don't see one. Any comments or questions before we move on? So, you know, it would be worthwhile, you know, and if people are looking, uh, I see your hand there, Andrea, I'll, I'll get to you in a second. Uh, as we enter, prepare ourselves for Lent, and uh, as we enter into it, a good Lexio Divina, you know, a good meditation uh, to carry through the Holy season would be the, the story of Exodus itself, uh, as well as the, the story of the institution of the Eucharist or uh, the entire story of the passion to let the, these two things be our, our meditation throughout the whole entire uh, Lenten season as a, as a preparation to enter into the event. It's not like we would need something more or that we would exhaust our meditation on, uh, on these uh, two, you know, two things. And so, you know, as we go through it now, I think, it sort of shines a light on how important that would be. Andrea. Hi, Father. It's actually, oh, yeah. okay. yes, I, I, I was uh, reflecting on what you, what you were just saying about uh, the uh, importance to see what is happening at Mass, you know, as an altar, as a sacrifice, and, you know, how going too far into viewing it as a meal, you know, can be detrimental. I was also thinking, you know, that there's a fine balance because, you know, it's both, right? It's both right. a sacrifice and it's a meal. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was thinking from the other perspective, if one overemphasizes the fact that, you know, it's a sacrifice to God who's all powerful and who deserves all this reverence, uh, you know, they, then you kind of, lose the fact that God is also father and he's also trying to gather us in and have this radical intimacy with us. Right. And to me that that is really the Christian difference. The Muslims also have great reverence for God, but mm -hmm. the difference with in Christianity is that we have God as father who desires this intimacy with us. So uh, without, without uh, putting aside the fact that we, uh, we do cannot lose sight of what's happening at mass, it's also important to uh, uh, not also lose track of the other side. Right. Very good. I mean, we, you're absolutely right. I think we could swing wide in either direction and lose sight of things. And I think the church had already done that. And I think the leading up to the council, as we all see already here in the 1940s, Guardini writing about it, the acknowledgement that there was a loss of vision there. I think of uh, what we are participating in and uh, where, you know, most of the prayers were done in silence and people, you know, they were done in Latin, very little was done in the vernacular. And so, you know, people would be praying. There was devotion, of course, and, and genuine faith, 
but gradually over time, uh, there was a loss of sense of that intimacy, I think is what, what you're talking about, you know, of our participating in that, not as mere observers, uh, but radically present to what is taking place at the altar, as we would be radically present and aware of what was going on on Mount Calvary or at the Last Supper itself. And there is this struggle still, I think, within the, the life, of the, even after all these years since the council of back and forth, uh, you know, in terms, and that, I think that's why I love Guardini. Uh, and I think he's severely underread uh, among the, the writers. And, uh, you know, maybe it's because it, you know, he is prior to the council, yet so close to the council, you know, uh, in the 40s. So he, you know, he predates it. Uh, and so in some ways, people probably think uh, he's one of the ones responsible for what we see happening afterwards. Uh, and yet when you read his writings, you think he, he understood it well. I think he understood the struggle, you know, on both sides. And, and so would try to maintain maintain that that balance that is needed so that it doesn't become something banal on one hand and yet we don't lose sight of the tremendous mystery that we are participating in and uh and and i i still don't think that we are there in fact far from it and i think we have to be careful in thinking that okay if we simply reinstitute what has been in the past that somehow that's going to solve the problem for for us and i think we know that that's not true just by going back to celebrating the mass in the way that it was is not going to catechize us and help us enter into it and inflame our faith and our desire for god and the eucharist without this level of, of catechesis uh in fact it might undermine it in some way and uh and so the, I think people are pretty well aware that catechesis has struggled over the over these years, over these decades, and uh, is still faltering in, in in many ways. And we see the fruit of that, you know, in terms of of people leaving, at least in the West. And so, good good, good point to make, you know. And uh, uh, I think when we look at the Passover meal and when we have that in mind. You know, we see that they had, the Hebrews had it clear in mind, you know, the, the sort of the awesomeness of what was taking place there uh, because of how they entered into it and, uh, you know, in such a, a radical way, they sort of participated in that, you know, in terms of what they ate, how they ate it, the prayers that they said, and again, how they catechized uh, uh, I think even at the beginning of the Seder meal, one of the uh, the youngest child child says, "You know, why is it that we? Why is this night so special? You know, so you know it is. You know, you're introducing the children to the question. You know, why is it we're doing what it is that we're doing? And I think fundamentally that the 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 council wanted to do that for us to ask those questions." Why are we doing what we're doing? Uh, that there was something that had been lost there 
over time. And uh, unfortunately, again, you know, I think for multiple reasons, you know, cultural, both within the church and outside of the church, all the things going on historically, you know, what was went on within the 20th century itself, the multiple wars, you know, everything that was happening, I think it, the, uh, the sexual revolution, all kinds of things were going on that uh, there's this tremendous upheaval that carried the church along with it. Okay, I see Ren, you have your hand up? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry if, uh, yeah, I'm sorry I'm so schlubby, but I'm not well. <laughs> um, Frightening. Um, <laughs> So this isn't really, I don't know, this may be totally off the wall, but it's just something I've been thinking about for like 10 days ever since it happened. Um, thinking about like how we strike the balance between understanding the Eucharist as sacrifice and the Eucharist as meal. Also what kind of meal it is. Like, is it a meal of a loving parent feeding their child or is it like a meal in the sense of like, I walk by and grab something to eat and go on with my day, right? Um, and and what the, uh, and, and the power of witness to our understanding of the Eucharist and of, uh, in the way that we, in how we celebrate the Eucharist itself and then how we receive it. Because I had this really jarring experience at the cathedral about, yeah, I guess two weeks now um i was uh i was at mass and i noticed i i had noticed that there was this um this large uh very like traditionally dressed indian family in the back of the chapel and i thought oh well they're probably um from like they're probably from South India. They're probably Catholic Indians. And like, that's very cool. And, you know, so I just kind of thought that and moved on. Um, and it was neat because it was the feast of St. Joseph Vaz. And I was like, oh, how appropriate. Or it was close to it. So I thought that was cool. And then interestingly enough, after mass, I was leaving the cathedral and the family was standing in the doorway and they had some very young daughters. Well, not very young, but like college age daughters. And the daughter came up to me. She goes, excuse me, um, did that have meat in it? And I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. And she's like, did it have meat in it? And I, I was so, I mean, I had no idea what she was talking about. She's like, the food they were handing out for everyone, did it have meat in it? Because we don't eat meat. So we didn't go up to get any of the food because it didn't have meat. And I mean, I was just like, I was a little shocked. So my first thing, my first question was, why were you just here at a Catholic mass? Like, what, what are you doing here? You know, I just, I didn't know what to say. So I was like, oh, are, are you Catholic? And they're like, oh no. And I was just like, okay. I just, I had no idea. And I mean, how do you go from someone who asked if the Eucharist was food containing meat? that was being handed out. And I literally just stood there and I was like, actually it's the body of Christ. <laughs> They're like, should we have gone and gotten some of it? And I was like, um, 
well, no, actually only, only practicing Catholics are, should receive the Eucharist. But if you ever did become Catholic, it's just flour and water. Like, I didn't know what to say, but it was, I guess what was shocking to me is that whatever had been going on, they had no sense that this was a holy part of what was going on. They, they literally thought the end of whatever service we were doing, we handed out food. And they didn't know if it had meat in it or not. Mm-hmm. And, and wow, I mean, I was just, I don't know. I was just kind of, I was really sad. I was really sad about it. Like I just, so I don't know. I think that's just something, and now it's on my mind a lot. Like, and I see Andrea with her hand. Yeah, sorry. Let's do, let, I'll let Andrea <laughs> have a first shot at this, and then I'm off my tongue. Brent, you should just have said that it's human flesh. Right. <laughs> 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 so you know, being a little fun. <laughs> so being a little familiar with the with Hinduism, it's um Hindus are not opposed to any other religion. They actually believe that all right. religions are true. Okay, one. Two, in temples, in Hindu temples, they hand out food. Mm. It's very normal. Mm-hmm. So that's why that's, okay. that's they, right. yeah. Hence, so, yeah. and they probably did think that that was sacred, that okay. going on the service was holy and that what was okay. held was holy, but they would not know that it's the body, blood, soul, right. and the of our okay. Lord Jesus Christ, you know, whom, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. yeah. So, okay. yeah, it is, it can be very confusing. Yeah, it was, it, yeah. Was, it was, it was so much. I was just, you know, from everything from like, they stayed the, the whole mass, which was very beautiful. And I was just like, I'm not sure why you're here, but also like, I mean, the answer to your question is no, it doesn't have meat in it, but I'm not encouraging you to go receive it the next time. I'm like, it just, it was, it was, yeah, it was really- Let me jump in here a little bit. I think, you know, this is part of what the, you know, part of the council was stressing was our capacity then to articulate the faith for others. And, you know, perhaps people, you know, 50, 60 years ago might not have been able to handle that question any better than we might today. But I think the ideal is that we, we would be able to make the, those connections, both in terms, I think, what, what Andrea was saying, you know, in terms of how a Hindu would uh, look at religion itself and of eating, of meals, food, you know, served at a religious service. Uh, but what makes what Catholics does do unique what is it that's taking place here and especially in the context within which you know we're looking at it at this point and that we would have the ability uh to engage somebody you know depending on their their willingness to listen or to engage us that we would take those opportune moments uh not just to explain no, you should not receive or, you know, that, and, you know, try to figure out how to answer the surface question and to be able to move with a greater clarity that I think is driven by faith and love in Christ. You know, this sense of wanting 
others to know the redemption that comes through him. And uh, I think this is this evangelical a- aspect uh, of, uh, of the faith for, for us as, as Catholics was, you know, part of what had been lacking too, you know, our capacity to evangelize those around us, to be missionaries in our own right where we are in Pittsburgh or wherever we might be at the time, and to be able to speak to our, our faith in the way that uh, a St. Paul or a St. Peter would do, you know, to take that opportune moment uh, to fill in the gaps for that family, even if it's only one, one part of that. And the ability to do that, uh, part of it is intellectual, you know, our knowing the faith well, and all of us here, you know, educationally, we, we have a pretty strong background. And so we're, we're supposed to be able to articulate our faith, you know, to the best of our ability, you know, our capacity, what our capacity would allow. Uh, but more than that, that, that our faith would be such, and our love for the Eucharist would be such that how we would talk about that, even if it was very simplistic, would communicate something very powerful to the one who would be listening to us. That in simple words, uh, you often hear these stories about elders, you know, coming into contact with an atheist uh, and the, the holiness that exists there, that they're living in such a deep communion with Christ, that what the other encounters in that individual is Christ. And, uh, and are impacted by that in such a way that it enlivens something within them, uh, even if we might not be aware of that. And so, you know, certainly it's important what we're doing, you know, in terms of our grasp of it, but it's even more important what we, what, what we do with this in terms of our entering into the, the, the mass itself and allowing ourselves to be transformed by that grace. Uh, We're to become what we receive, as Augustine said. And so in encountering us, we should be the answer to that question, in other words, of that family, ultimately. You know, that in their encounter with us, they should experience what the Eucharist is. They should experience that, that, self-emptying, selfless love, the gentleness of Christ himself is what others should experience. And I think that's a good thing for us to keep in mind because I think one of our struggles in the West is that we do often over-intellectualize things. And not to say that the intellect doesn't have an important place, the use of reason, it does. But our entering into the mystery in all of its fullness, requires faith and requires that love of God. And for that grace to bear the, the greatest fruit within us means that there is this radical openness in the faith. So it could be someone who is not educated, say, knows their faith on a certain level and can articulate it, but if they have that faith and they've entered into this reality, they could engage that family as Christ, 
you know, having received the Holy Eucharist, they become God bearers. And so might have to say very little to the point that that family would say that there's something unique in this individual that I've never encountered before. You know, ultimately, I think if we were transformed and allowed ourselves to be transformed by the gift of the Eucharist, that the experience could be very much like that of the apostles when they encounter Christ. You know, they, 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 they drop everything and they follow him. And not that people would follow us, but that when we would engage them, that the encounter with Christ would be something so real because it's so real for us that they would be engaged in that moment. They would drop what they're doing, in other words, and engage us as we are engaging them. And if we're engaging them with holding nothing, you know, fully, you know, we have a fear of everybody now. We wear masks and we don't make eye contact with strangers. You know, think about it for a moment, even just on a practical level. Uh, most, we approach a lot of people as a threat to ourselves. You know, that we, and we don't teach our children to be open to the stranger. You know, it's uh, one thing to teach them to be careful and smart, you know, in, in the sense of not uh, trusting in a wrongful way someone that could could hurt them. But in some ways, we don't, we aren't forming perhaps children in pet press. We take something of that holy innocence away from them over time by our jaded view of the world, what they hear us saying all the rest of the time, children mimic, you know, what adults do. And so they, they pick up all these things very easily. You know, the violence they see on television, they see on the news, how they hear adults interact with each other. You know, they don't encounter uh, perhaps that radical hospitality. You know, when you go to a Benedictine monastery, one of the things that they're known for is this incredible hospitality. It's like being received. It should be like being received like Christ himself. And whenever you've gone to a monastery where there are exemplars of that, that's exactly what it feels like. And I think I mentioned here in this group in particular, or maybe it was in the St. Theophan, the, you know, the story of my grandmother. You know, she lived during, you know, the, you know, the depression, times of war, when people you didn't have much food and and yet you know when they would come to the door it would often be this fresh baked bread or jelly is that right mom am i getting that right and so you know this is what sticks in in their mind and so family members were told over and over again you know we wouldn't have made it through this period other than what we received from your mom and here she, you know, she was an immigrant from France, didn't speak English all that, you know, well, perhaps wasn't the, you know, this great orator or communicator, but what she did communicate was this generosity and compassion for others and their need. And so in some ways she bore witness to the, the gospel probably more fully than many of us would do. You know, partly because of our fear, somebody knocked at our door asking for that food. I think we've taught, you know, we've be, we've we've become jaded by 
so many different things we've been taught to fear that, you know, fear of being taken advantage of. Sheila, you had a thought. Sure. Can you hear me? I can. Oh, okay. All right. Great. Um, I guess this is a short, short story. I'll, I'll keep it short. But um, what, what Ren is talking about, what you're talking about kind of just brings to mind something. So prior to coming back to the church in my early 30s, I had spent my 20s, judge me if I want, but looking at, you know, really fascinated by meditation and, you know, really looked a lot at the Buddhism and those ideas of, you know, that that seems something really attractive to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I learned about what's happening in Hinduism as well. And right. uh, it was interesting because I, I was fascinated, but never quite could really make that like move into it. You know, I grew up Catholic, obviously, but could never quite like there was something missing, no matter how much I listened to Deepak Chopra tapes or whatever. So, <laughs> you know, I, I was sitting there and, and, and I, and I just, and it was interesting because um, I think a lot of what I was searching was in the Catholic church all along. Obviously I knew this now, but you know, as I was coming back and found the oratory and adoration, I, you know, found that, oh, wow, there actually is meditation in the Catholic church, you know, and re- really like these, these ideas of, you know, contemplative prayer and things like that, that I was actually seeking were actually present here. Well, I, I was, you know, so I'd been going to the oratory a lot, almost daily, like in a really time in my life when it was hard and coming, you know, to adoration every day. And, um, and I got, it was really interesting timing too. Um, like I was like, this is it. I've really found home. And, um, I had just walked out of adoration and this guy came up to me randomly and was like, Hey, so you love like meditation kind of asking me about, you know, what the adoration was. And he's like, you should come to like this, like, I don't even know what it was, some kind of temple meditation thingamabobber, but he was trying to get me there. He's like, well, there's, you know, we serve a big meal afterward. And I was like, you know, of course, like initially this is very attractive to me. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Community meal. But like in my head, but I look at him and I go, no, I, I, I found what I need here. And it was just really weird because this idea of food is, is looked at differently in different religions, you know, and I, and food can, oh, certainly the Catholic church has dinners and things like that. But, you know, in those religions, it is kind of part of the ceremony itself or or maybe it supplants the ceremony in importance or, you know, it, it, there are different variations of Buddhism and Hinduism, you know, different ways it, it's there. But, you know, that food in the Eucharist somehow for someone who is very attracted to food in its carnal form, I really, I was, I, I was very keenly aware now of that food being far superior. And, and, and I, I'm not saying I was not holy at this time, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not now, but you know, I was like, like, I wasn't even quite back fully, but yet there's something so attractive to, to adoration and to the Eucharist that like you were saying is just something different and, and you can't pin your finger on it in other religions. So I don't know, just a random story, but it was, it was a weird random story, but a a lot, a lot, lot there. Sorry. There's a lot there. No, a lot, a lot there and (laughs) all worthy to, to think about. I think you know, one of the things we do, what we have in the Catholic faith is is so beautiful. And not only a meal, but something far more, you know, our, our Lord feeds us upon his own love. He gives us his own body and blood as our food and drink. And there is a radical communion and union that we experience there with him, but also with each other. And 
but that with each other aspect of it, I think is often broken down, you know, like the part of it is the culture within the church, but even the broader culture, the suburban sprawl, if you will, that, you know, communities have sort of broken down. And so there isn't this mutual knowledge of the other. And uh, like I was struck where my parents used to live, that the neighborhoods would be empty. I think, where is everybody? This is like a ghost town. You know, all these big, big homes, big plan, but no kids out playing and, you know, rarely see anybody. And I think the same is true at church. You know, people would come and go, you know, not necessarily having any connection with each other. It became sort of like fast food kind of thing. They go in, get what they, you know, are there to receive, whether they understand it or not, and leave. And not necessarily being connected with each other or having any knowledge of the other, other than maybe being a familiar face. And, uh, you know, the smaller parishes that once existed, as well as the ethnic. You know, I think a lot of bishops really worked hard to dismantle that. You know, the national, you know, churches and things like the Polish church, French church, Italian, they wanted to break down those communities for some reason, thinking that it would establish a greater unity within the church. But what it actually did, I think, was dismantle something that connected people together on this very fundamental level, their ethnic background, and so created this community on this other level. And another, you know, story from my grandmother's life is that my mom would say when she would go grocery shopping with her, that she'd that stop at like every house coming back up the street while so my grandma could say hello and talk to the person sitting on their front porch. They knew each other. And in, in on multiple levels, you know, people doing things with each other, for each other, you know, and so they were connected, you know, when it came then to celebrating the Eucharist together or, you know, the other church devotions that would take place or other things going on in the church hall that they're, you know, they weren't all these disconnected faces. And so coming together to celebrate the Eucharist was the sort of the height of that reality of being united in Christ, but it was also reflective of the lived reality of their day-to-day life. And we hear from the very beginning, Paul rebuking some of the early communities because they were failing to do that on some level. They were losing sight of how they were connected to each other. And they were coming to celebrate the, the Eucharist in a way that already showed a kind of blindness on their part. And so he had to, to correct them. And, and so, you know, I think in a far more significant way, you know, we're combining out of necessity now, you know, all these churches into these sort of mega group parishes. And it's very hard then, I think, uh, and when priests are moved in and out very quickly, you know, you're removing the father, you know, it's sort of like the, of the family over and over again. So it's like you're traumatizing the, the community as well as traumatizing the priest in doing so because it creates a kind of instability rather than familiarity where there can be real, real, real growth in community. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I do, you know, there are a lot of things that you said there, you know, you know, the, the church does have this incredible mystic, tr- mystical tradition, 
and spiritual tradition. And for those of you who come here to the oratory, you know, we're, we're tapping some of the depths of that. We've had the good fortune to do that. And, but, you know, in a large part, because we aren't connected together, you know, people are unaware of that. We have this great treasure house of, of a spiritual tradition and people are out looking at Deepak or Deepak, I can't remember his name, you know, or, or Oprah or whatever to find something that will help them deal with the realities of day-to-day -day life. And we have something that's far greater, you know, a meditation that is not simply freeing the mind from the stressors of the day or bringing relaxation, but bringing a greater intimacy with Christ, the source of life itself, and who can give us ultimate freedom. You know, our, our, our meditation is radically personal. And if we lack that in every other aspect of our life, how are we going to have that with, with Christ? You know, if we're so disconnected from each other, we're also likely to be disconnected from him. You know, when I look at my own life, it's been through connection with priests and Catholic friends that, you know, that that world opened up to me over, over the course of time that we don't live. You know, I think the problem is, is that we so so many Catholics live the faith in a disincarnate kind of way, you know, in this abstract notional way rather than in this real concrete fashion, both in terms of our participation in the Eucharist, but also in our engagement with each other. You know, our idea of community is an idea, you know, but it often goes you know, further than that. In some ways, we don't need more programs. You know, what we need is this connection with each other and an understanding of what we're doing in the liturgy, most importantly, that connection with Christ. I think the adoration does, you know, a lot there because it brings us into that personal encounter and personal encounter in particular with where we gaze upon the Eucharistic face of Christ. And so then when it comes to celebration, the celebrating the Eucharist, you know, that we are focused in a different way. Okay. So we've been going on for a while. We've digressed a good bit. So we're moving on with the text here, if you don't mind. Anybody know where I left off at first? Right? Is that right? The words at first? Okay. At first, the celebration had the form of a grave memorial, but gradually it assumed the character of a joyous festival. The meal grew increasingly rich, those at table no longer stood, girt for the journey and staff in hand, but reclined comfortably. No longer did they eat in the originally prescribed haste. They dined in untroubled leisure. So, you know, we're looking at the form and the matter of it, and we see, you know, already within the Hebrew community that, that sort of altering then, you know, loss of a sense of the urgency uh, of, of surrounding the meal itself. And I think that can happen to us as well. You know, our familiarity and our leisureliness with which we celebrate it. And I'm not speaking of this, the speed of the, the, the liturgy, but rather um, 
you know, this sense of, you know, how we aren't attuned to the urgency of what this event is calling us to. You know, we've lost the sense of being at the foot of Calvary and what that would do to the human heart and what it would elicit from us. And so we can, uh, we can have that same thing that uh, Guardini is describing here. You know, it takes upon a celebratory and joyous uh, uh, sort of nature, which is, is fine. It should have that. But we can also, if we lose that sense of urgency, then it can be simply our celebrating a, a joyous gathering, but not, you know, come, we're eating a common meal together or we're getting together, but not seeing the impact that that is having on our life, what it's calling us to become. The Exodus certainly sort of transformed their understanding of who they were as a people and their relationship with God what he had done for them, then should shape the way that they would engage each other, but also anyone else that they would encounter. And even more so for us in the celebration of, of the Eucharist, if we lose sight of this urgency of our being present uh, at this radical event at Calvary and uh, the recipients also of the life and love that come to us through it, if we lose sight of that, then the way that we engage people five minutes later is likely to be unimpacted. And, you know, we, I think we see that all, all too often. Okay. The ritual of the feast was roughly as follows. To begin with, the host mixed and blessed wine in a beaker, which was then passed around. Then the first course was eaten and the second beaker was blessed and circulated. After that, the host broke the unleavened bread lying on the table and handed each guest a piece. For each, he dipped, for each, he dipped a small bunch of bitter herbs into a bowl and proffered it. Now a number of psalms were recited and the lamb was consumed, followed by a third beaker and a fourth. More psalms concluded the celebration. During the meal, the host described the great event that was being commemorated in such a manner that those present could imagine themselves back in the days of Moses. So it should all sound very familiar to us. You know, ritually, they were, they were playing out what took place in the Exodus. And along with it, the, the scriptures were read, including the, the event itself. And when we look at our own Mass, we see that taking place. You know, our readings follow through this three-year cycle that take us through the, the, the scriptures and the major events in life, Christ's life. But the Eucharist itself, the liturgy of the Eucharist, we are, you know, we are doing what they, they did. The, 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 the passion of Christ is being played out in the liturgy of the Eucharist, in particular, the institution of the Eucharist with his own with his own words. So we're celebrating the new covenant very much in, in uh, a similar way to which they, they celebrated the old. But here's where he gets into the, the, the sort of the breaking away here, the altering uh, of, the, of the form as well as the matter. Jesus broke this pattern. He who knew himself Lord of the law and the covenant put an end to the thought that hitherto 
commemorated and established instead a new memorial. Similarly, he put an end to the covenant that had been established by the event commemorated, and he sealed it with a new covenant of redemption with his death. So, you know, in the old covenant, we see, should see a prefiguration of what is to be fulfilled in Christ. And we, we see God's hand in salvation history of preparing his people to receive such a Lord and Redeemer that they would be able, you know, over the course of time, even certainly while his apostles would have difficult time understanding it first, would be able to connect all these things together. And we hear Christ reiterating at the re re resurrection, you know, taking them through uh, the prophets and the Psalms and the, the stories of the scriptures in order to set their hearts afire, that they would be able to see God acting among his people, preparing them precisely for his coming and for and for the event that took place on, on the cross, as well as what took place at the Last Supper. And in faith, they would be able to come to see that uh, with a perfect clarity. Uh, but we do see it as a fulfillment and uh, of that of that old covenant. With the new, the old passes away. And we see this, you know, when Christ talks about the practice of fasting too, that you can't put, you know, new wine into old wineskins. You have to put it into new wineskins, otherwise it'll burst. So we have to make that transition. We see the connection with the old covenant and we see how clearly it was, how essential it was, but it transcends it. You know, something radically new takes place that alters its meaning in a radical fashion. We can see the exact place where Jesus intervened. The cup mentioned by St. Luke in the foregoing passage is the third beaker of the Pasch. One interpreter beautifully compliments the Lord's words, take this and share it among you with, for the last time, according to the ancient rite. And so this is what Jesus is doing. You know, he's altering it. And in some ways, the way that you celebrate, saying to them, the way that you celebrated the Passover is no longer going to be the same. It's always now going to be seen through the lens of his passion, death, and resurrection. It's altered in such a radical way that it takes on a completely new meaning. Then Jesus takes bread, offers thanks, breaks it, and gives it to them. Again, the act which the host had always performed, only now it receives a new significance in Jesus' accompanying words. This is my body, which is being given for you. Whereupon he takes the cup after the supper, as the host had always taken it, blesses it, thanks God, and offers it again with the new significance of his words. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So in some ways, you know, I know that I'm not telling you, and Guardini is not telling you anything that you haven't heard before. I think it's hearing it all together as he presents it. Uh, and even in its simplicity here for us in this little reflection of making that connection for us between the Passover meal and its 
alteration and our being able to see that uh, in and through the lens of his passion, death, and resurrection that is important. Something wholly new is being established and something far greater that was simply transfigured in the Passover. The Passover from the death of, of, the, of the angel in the Old Testament story now becomes the Passover uh, of death itself, of, of immortal death through, through our, our Lord's death on the cross. The old covenant, sealed with the blood of the sacrificial animals, is at an end. Now a new covenant has been sealed, again with blood, that of Christ. He himself is offered up like the lamb they have just slaughtered and consumed. His body, which is given for you, his blood, which shall be shed for you. So hearkening back to what the account from Luke tells us, you know, that I will not drink of this again, or I will not eat of this again, because this new reality has been established. I have become the fulfillment of what you've always celebrated. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it is you from this point on who's going to be feasting upon me, he who is the bread of life, he who is life and love itself. Here too, it is a commemoration. Do this in remembrance of me. St. Paul continues the thought in the first epistle to the Corinthians, in which he writes, For as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. And so, you know, for, for us, it's not a spectacle. You know, when we're at Mass, we're not simply watching this unfold. And we're not simply thinking about our in our mind or bringing it to imagination that what is taking place uh, is something that is perpetuated, that the saving mystery of our Lord's passion, death, and resurrection is made immediately present to us and we to it. And, uh, and it is this, in this way that the person, the faith, the redemptive uh, uh, reality that Christ brings about is made present to us and received. And it's interesting that Christ would do this in the way that he did, a very human way in the context of a meal. And so getting back, uh, I think, to what Anthony was saying, we don't want to lose that whole holy, you know, this sense of, of, of the meal, uh, that we are his companions. We break bread with him companus, com companions, uh, but in the truest sense of the word, that uh, in our breaking bread with him, we become one with him, uh, truly companions, you know, and uh, in the sense that we walk always as one with him. There's never a time that we are in isolation from him. Uh, from the, the time that we received the Holy Eucharist. That is the event, Gordini concludes, upon which the institution of the Mass rests. Christ himself, his love, 
his redeeming fate are its contents, which he poured into the mold of the ancient covenant, now brought to completion. Only the form remains, the ceremonial supper. Henceforth, the new covenant is there to contain those contents to the end of history, quote, until he comes, end quote. And so until the end of history, this uh, reality that in a sense transcends it, you know, and becomes our participation in the very life and love of the kingdom is always present to us until the fulfillment of that reality when all things are made one and consummated. And so, you know, this is the first stepping stone for us. The next little meditation is entitled Reality. And so what Gordini is going to lead us into is how, how this now shapes our reality and our understanding of ourselves as human beings. Uh, and particular human beings that have been brought into this radical oneness with Christ in and through the Passover, the Paschal meal through the Eucharist. So it's important for us, and I think this is why he worked so hard, to have us have to have it appropriately framed for us, the form and the content, the matter of it, how it is radically changed, that we might have this in mind, and how it's a fulfillment of that old covenant. And then from now on, we will be looking at how this is then to be embraced and lived. How it alters reality itself. That's always the harder part for us. We're not meant to just jump back in our cars and go home and go on with everything as it, you know, as it is. You know, I think we are meant to have this sense that you know, our, our life is radically changed through what we just participated in. We've become something different, you know, part of the body of Christ. It's the mind of Christ now that guides and directs us. Any comments or questions on the whole, whole thing or the last part? Yes, I saw a hand go up there. Anthony or Andrea? Mm-hmm me this time okay it is so good to know this um for example you know here he commanded every hebrew family to slaughter a lamb and then they would consume it mm-hmm. um it is so good to be aware of this roots uh, i am new to the faith seven years i call that new um before i've tried everything else uh, atheism I, I was a pagan different things and and then in the media, there are just so many fantastic stories, the Avengers, Superman, Supergirl. I mean, there's, everything is just a fantastic story. It's normal. So when I came to the faith, which is because I was called, because the reason I came is because I wanted to receive Holy Communion. I didn't know why, but that was my one thing, the one thing in my mind. So I really came on really not knowing, kind of blind faith. And then I just kept coming, you know, and my life got better and better, you know, everything, I was changed, you know, everything became good and beautiful, you know, well, there's still a long way to go, but, um, so I could see the results of it. 
So, but seeing this, that, you know, the Jews, you know, they would slaughter lamb and then they would consume it, consume it. And that that is what our Lord was, was drawing from, was reenacting what he became the, the ultimate form of, uh, what was uh, preparing for his own appearance, for his own sacrifice. That's right. So now that what used to be before, you know, more in the fantastic realm, you know, I just knew that it works. That's why I kept coming. It now, it feeds my faith. So I find it is just so important to, to have this background details, uh, the context of what, what he did. It, uh, it can, uh, especially in today's world, when the media is just, you know, every form of entertainment is just filled with so many fantastic elements. I mean, people will believe anything, you know. It's hard to know what is real and what is not real anymore. It is so good to have to have this substantiated, you know, especially for the modern mind, you know, which needs to, um, has gotten so used to, to science. It is so important to have this substantiated, to be shown the truth. It increases the faith. That's all excellent points. And I think this is why he, he entitles the next reflection reality, because we want to be caught up in that fantasy that you were talking about, escape reality, whereas there's something about entering into this new covenant that leads us into the heart of reality of not only our relationship with God, but what it is to be a human being. You know, living in a fallen world that has a redeemer such as this, you know, there was, you know, it struck me as we were reading through this of thinking of the Hebrews actually slaughtering the, the lamb, whether it was during the original Exodus or in the celebration of the Passover, you know, that they slaughtered a lamb and they ate the lamb. There, there was something very concrete and visceral about that. And in our day, you know, we uh, sanitized things are so sanitized for us in terms of our participation in this reality with all of our senses and all of our being. And, you know, I'm not saying we're, we should be, you know, slaughtering animals to make this, you know, the reality of, you know, life and death more concrete for us, but we have to ask ourselves, okay, if the slaughter of animals is no longer a part of this and if Christ has offered himself, if he is the Lamb of God, and it's through offering himself on the cross on our behalf, and he gives us himself to feed upon his body and blood in the Eucharist, then what does that mean for us, you know, in a concrete way? You know, you know what is our participation, and how do we participate in that sacrifice? Because there's a sense, you know, Christ is both priest and victim. And when we are made one with him, what do we become? When we say, amen, so be it, we receive him, we become one with him. What does that mean we become? Anybody have a clue? <laughs> we become priest and victim as well. We participate in that very reality. And... You know, what brings that home to us, except the very thing that we find revolting or that we want to push away or we are fearful of? 
and it is the sufferings of our life, the, the crosses of our of our life, that we, and so you know we are called to participate in these realities, uh, and they're very difficult. You know they require that same ascent of will that Christ gives to the Father. You know, let it be done unto me according to your word, or nevertheless not as I will, but as you will when we are faced with that chalice that is placed before us, you know, to drink into the dregs. And, uh, and so when we sanitize things and we allow ourselves to be removed from that, you know, both of what's taking place when we gather to celebrate the Eucharist, we're, you know, we, we, we're a step removed because we've, you know, uh, turned it into, again, past history rather than immediate mystery that we participate in. We've also removed from ourselves, you know, the, the reality of the cross. And, you know, I'm not being harsh here. I think, you know, it's not that we go out or need to go out looking for suffering. I think life presents it to us freely and we don't have to go searching for it. And, but when it does come to us, how is it that we are, see it and see it connected with all the things that we've been discussing here in light of our union and communion with Christ, how God willed to bring about our salvation and how he willed to, for us to participate in this reality fully. Again, not in our mind intellectually, but involving the whole self. Because it would be easy if we, if this was simply a historical event that we're thinking about, bringing to mind, it would be easy to put it out there, you know? And so also then to distance ourselves from the reality of, of how that manifests itself in our day-to-day life what it is that we're celebrating at the altar. But all of a sudden, when it becomes ever so concrete and tangible, that we are receiving the, the redemptive fate of Christ, the life of Christ that comes to us through the cross, and we become one with that reality, then our life is going to take on a different shape. The shape of cruciform love. Okay. Any comments yes. on that note? <laughs> huh? Father Mary has a has a question. Who? Mary. Mary. Okay, I see her. I see. Okay. Oh. Just got to put your pictures up. There's... It's not Mary. It's... Oh wait, no. Okay, well that wasn't who I was expecting. That Mary, you need to was... do something about Close your enough. facial hair. <laughs> okay, then then there's then there's two then there's two questions. Okay, kidding for Mary. Okay. <laughs> Uh, no, in the, when you've been uh, describing the passage here, the descriptions of the new covenant either was superseding or obsolescing the old covenant. Uh, what is the author talking about? Say that again. The last phrase. Uh, what is the author? Uh, what What is being discussed? Well, it's being sa- said that the old covenant covenant is superseded and fulfilled in Christ. Uh, you know, the church has always said that you know for those who are Jewish, the covenant remains and their fidelity 
to it remains and is acknowledged by God. But the fulfillment of that covenant is found in the new covenant established through Christ, that he is all that is prefigured and foretold uh, in, in, in those events, you know, in the teachings of the prophets and most especially in the, the Passover here when we're talking about the Eucharist. Thanks. Okay. Did Mary have a question too? No, I don't think so. Okay. No, there's a second Mary on here. Oh, who there is a have second a question Mary. Who okay. messaged me, yes. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. So I've been wondering, um, someone asked me about this in my school. Mm -hmm. Why did God choose a lamb as the animal to be sacrificed and not like a ram or a goat? Well, you know, I, I guess that's a, sort of a hard question to answer. I think partly it's the uh, the gentleness of the lamb, you know, I think is especially how, you know, we, we've come to understand Christ as the lamb of God led to the slaughter that, again, it's tied to this event of the, the Passover, that it would be through the lamb's blood that they are, are passed over. And so that this would be carried on and it would be the lamb of the Passover meal itself that Christ would become in reality, the lamb of God. And, but I think part of it is that, you know, the, a lamb is about the gen most gentle of creatures. And, you know, part of what Christ is seeking to es establish and show is the, the gentle and self compassionate and self emptying love of God. I think there's this expectation uh, in particular uh, among the Hebrews that uh, that the Messiah would be a conquering ruler, that he would overcome oppressors, at least among some of them, even though there are, uh, especially in Isaiah, uh, you know, images that present uh, us with the suffering servant, the Messiah being a suffering servant, uh, very lamb-like in that regard. But I think there was a great hope uh, that he would also be one who would free them from worldly bondage. Again, that he would raise up armies. And so, uh, you know, John the Baptist, you know, sort of picks up in his faith and as the last of the prophets, that Christ is the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God, that this is how God is going to bring about his liberation, not through armies, not through the sword, but through the word of God, but especially through the cross, through, through this sacrificial love. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions before we wrap her up? Here, I thought this was gonna be a shorter one because it was only two pages long. I should know better by now, but uh, we'll pick up next next month uh, again with the little section on uh, on reality, and so we'll get that scheduled. And I look forward to seeing you then. And we'll stop here with our, our prayer, as usual, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you all. Thank you, Thank you, Father. All right. Have a wonderful night. Good to Thanks, see you. Thanks, Father. Have a good night.